Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, have you ever wanted to rewire your brain to be able to do things that you wanted to do and stop doing things that hurt you or are not letting you get to the next level in your life? Well, today's guest is here to help you work that out. We have on the show Holly Copeland. And Holly uses neuro and biofeedback technologies and meditation to help her clients learn to calm their minds, access their innate wisdom, joy, and build inner resilience. We had a fantastic conversation about biofeedback, mind hacking, neural pathways, neuroscience, and so much more. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Holly Copeland. How are you doing, Holly? I'm doing great, Alex. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you. You've lived an interesting life so far. You're doing some really interesting work. So my first question is, can you tell the audience a little bit about how you started down this unique path that you're on right now, where you came from and why you are on this path. Sure. I'd be happy to, you know, I, I'm, I want to roll back just to some of the earliest experiences that I had. So, you know, to say, to start off by saying I had been on the seeking path, if you will, since at least age six, when I turned to my mom in the car and I and I kind of held my arm out and pinched my skin. And I was like, who am I? Like, who am I? You know? Um, and so I like to, that feels to me like that was actually the beginning of the journey at age six to want to know really at a deep level who I was. And that continued in my teens where I was exploring a lot of metaphysical books and, I happened to have some parents who were exploring that. So I was going to channelings and some, you know, things like that, meditating at, you know, age 13, 14. And then I went off to college and got very interested in environmental science. I was passionate about earth conservation. Mm -hmm. And that put me on a trajectory of really what I want to do with my career is to help save the earth. If we, if, if I want to be blunt about it, you know, in, in 12 year old terms, I want to save the whales, you know, I could see bad things happening and really wanted to, to orient my life to fixing that. And so I entered the, you know, the university sort of scientific system. I went off on that trajectory. I was very blessed to get a job with the nature conservancy and become that led to becoming a conservation scientist for them and I was 
doing the things, I mean, it, it, by all respects, leading kind of the dream job life, out tracking mule deer in Wyoming, tracking sage grouse and working to protect them, working on condors in California. I was doing a lot of very cool wildlife oriented work, working with amazing people. And somewhere along the line, about five years ago, I, the, mm, shall we say, the shine of that lead wore off a little bit. And what was settling was just this despair. I hear people call it like environmental grief, feeling as though there would never be enough time, money, or resources to save the planet. And like getting up every single day, trying to do my best and just being burnt out, honestly, with that. And also at the same time, I got mold poisoning. So I had a personal health crisis. And I was also really, really tired of the voice in my head running the show. Hmm. And <laughs> just like, even though I'd studied the spiritual path, there was still this narrator in my head that felt like it wouldn't shut off. And so I went down a journey to kind of fix all of that, to get healthy and deal with mold crisis, to um, rewire my brain as it were. And just like got really serious about like, I've got to figure out, you know, that, and it oriented me back into the spiritual path too. So sort of everything was converging in a bit of a, you know, personal crisis, if you will. And I took a deep dive inward um, because I'm a scientist. I got super interested in a lot of the different tools that might be used to help quiet the mind. I got a fancy headset called the muse to listen to my brainwaves and took a deep inner, like a much more serious deep inner dive in meditation and learning meditation. And if I were to sum it up, I'd say I, you know, all of that worked amazingly beautifully so well that when I came out of it, I quit my job and I oriented my life towards helping other people find the peace, calm and clarity that I've found. Well, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I could only imagine, you know, waking up every morning going, I'm going to save the world. And you're like, well, you know, it's, it might take more than just me. And it might take more than this life. <laughs> and granted, I knew it wasn't just me, right? I knew it was right? like an army of people. <laughs> but still, but in your head, but in your head, which is, you know, your best friend and your worst enemy, that voice is your best friend and your worst enemy all at the same time. Uh, it, it it definitely wears on you. And you had a kind of this, you know, I talk to a lot of near-death experiencers and that's the thing that just completely shakes their entire life. And when they come out of it, they're just a different person. You didn't have a near-death experience, but you had a health crisis, a mental crisis, I'm, I'm sure an emotional crisis in there somewhere that yep. forced you down a different path. So you were just pushed in a different way. It almost a sense, it sounds like the universe was like, you, you need to start moving this direction and, oh, you're not listening. Okay, well then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hit a sledgehammer over your head. <laughs> exactly, universe has a funny way of doing it, doing that, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, they they tap you on the shoulder at the beginning, uh -huh. and they they whisper, they tap, they poke, and then the you know the wall comes crashing down around you. <laughs> like apparently she's not listening. We're gonna have to take this up a notch. <laughs> that is exactly yeah. That is so well said. I completely agree. You know. And for me, the hardest one was waking up with my face all swollen one morning because I had mold poisoning and it took me, you know, eight months to even figure out what was wrong, but oh it was a sledgehammer of like physical illness to be like, you aren't listening, you know, this, 
and I wouldn't have believed it then. I would have never thought like what I asked for that or I wanted that, but I honestly believe there are no accidents that everything mm -hmm. that's happening is happening here um, in service of us. And I say that in full awareness, because as I'm saying that I, you know, I see all the abuse and the pain and the suffering of people. And that's a very hard statement to say, knowing that there's real tragedy happening to real people. Um, and in my heart of hearts from everything I know, as impossible as that sounds and feels, I do, that is the truth that I live and believe. And my, it's my understanding that that is actually true. Yeah. And, and I've said this on the show multiple times, and I think I can't say it enough. Life doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. Mm -hmm. um, and when you make that switch, it's very powerful in your life, in your own life. Uh, it really is. Now, when I was doing research on you, you mentioned ancient wisdom a lot mm -hmm. uh, in, in the work that you're doing. Can you explain what kind of ancient wisdom? Because again, broad topic, uh, save the world, ancient wisdom. Is there any specific philosophies, um, texts, uh, ideas? Where did you get them from? And, and how did you kind of harvest those into your work? Yeah, thank you for that question. So I, when I went down the meditative path, I started studying with some teachers who were teaching a practice called subtle energy meditation, which is grounded in Kriya. And I see Paramahasa Yogananda behind oh, you. Yeah. yeah, and ancient and Christian mysticism and mm -hmm. uh, some uh, Qigong and you know Taoist practices. And the the practice they were teaching embodied and blended all of that. So I studied that with them and learned to bring, you know, energy up my spine and what that was about. So I started to understand the energetic, the subtle energetics that are going on in the body, which was super profound. I had never experienced or understood how powerful that can be mm. to tap into the subtle energy system of our own body. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I also started to study uh, Tibetan Mahamudra and Dzogchen practices, the direct awakening practices. Are you familiar? I'm with not familiar with that one, no. Yeah, so these are Tibetan Buddhist practices and they're considered, they came after or a little bit later than some of the earlier practices that are more rooted in what's called the progressive path. So more like the traditional um, Thai Buddhist um, path of, you know, focusing on your breath and just keep focusing right. on breath until you finally have these breakthroughs. And what Dzogchen, um, the great perfection says is actually that our, uh, awakening is here right now and we're never separate from it. So therefore we can point people into like glimpses or seeing the seeing of that even at any moment. So even right now. And so, that I found, it felt, the biohacker in me was like, oh my God, that sounds like a shortcut. <laughs> and I'm putting my hand up. Yes, please. <laughs> Can we quickly go there rather than, you know, suffer through um, many, you know, hours of long meditations that last many, many weeks. So, and those practices and the teacher, teachers that I've studied with were absolutely profound. Because for me, I think I was primed for it. I had, you know, the meditation and, and that understanding like the, um, um, Eckhart Tolle 
pointing to that we are not our thoughts, you know, mm-hmm. our guru, we're not the body, we're not the mind, are all pointing to this understanding, but to actually experientially step into it through these ancient Tibetan practices was was super profound for me. And so that's some of the work that I studied and, and now teach and work with people on. Now, how does science interact with these ancient wisdoms, which is one of my more biggest fascinations is anytime I have a scientist on or a quantum physicist on, I love talking about the 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 sense of what reality is and how the quantum field is and all these kind of things and how they interact and how spirituality is interacting with science. But I'd love to hear your in your work how you how you combine them coming from a scientific background. Mm-hmm. Sure. I combine them in a couple ways. And the first one that I feel guided to speak about is this idea of wholeness that David Bohm pointing, pointed to in the implicate order and that a wonderful physicist named Sky Isaacs Nelson talks about. If you haven't, if you haven't seen his work, he's a fascinating on this topic from Berkeley and wrote a book called Leap into Wholeness. And so what they're pointing to is the physics the quantum physics, how quantum physics is showing that everything is a hologram and that every particle or bit contains information about the whole. So therefore our universe is fundamentally from from a quantum physics point of view, whole. And that understanding of wholeness is actually at the foundation of of non-dual techniques like Buddhism, the Mahamudra and Dzogchen are both non-dual traditions. So I should have maybe said that. Mm -hmm. Those are the Tibetan non-dual traditions, which are pointing to that, that there aren't two. Fundamentally, the universe is one. And so that's one example where those two, for me, come together. How does this understanding from quantum physics that we aren't separate actually marry with all of what the non-dual traditions had been saying all along? And, um, but I, it... I'm just like, I'm just endlessly fascinated by the work of like sand, you know, science and non-dual, um, group that, that brings together those truths, consciousness and, um, how it's... everything is conscious, you know, yeah, we're not it... real society. It's really, it's really fascinating because I mean, quantum physics in many ways has, um, it goes against materialism, which is what the basis of all science has been since science started to be recorded. I mean, in in I guess in the West mostly, um, but it's now science, right? I'm sorry, yeah, exactly. And then uh, is, I think it was when when quantum physics came out, uh, the concepts that are coming out. I think it was 1918, or early mm-hmm. eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, but it hasn't really moved a whole lot other than, you know, string theory and a few other things. It doesn't seem like um, it has moved and it has created a lot of ideas, but what it's saying scares the hell out of the establishment. So there's like these two groups of like, there's the old school scientists and these new school quantum physicists are going, no, no, the world arguably could be a simulation. We The math makes sense now, you know, we could, you know, and it's was exactly what, uh, you know, Hindus have been saying about Maya, the great oh. illusion. All along, I mean, the Aborigine have been saying this is a dream. Like this is not new, but now science is starting to catch up with it. So, and I think it's, I think it's starting to rev up a little bit more with quantum physics. I think, uh, which brings me to my next question: uh, the quantum field. Can you explain the quantum field a little bit? 
<laughs> oh, just throw me a nice, easy question, Alex. Save the world. Um, good. <laughs> so quantum um, field. Yeah. Two sentences. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. First, I'm not a physicist, so yes. I'm going to qualify it with that. <laughs> um, I interact with the quantum field and understand the quantum field from the perspective of um, the fact that like like ether, right? That there's this underlying zero point field that is the basis of everything. And I, I'm not gonna be able to explain it anyway in mathematical terms, mm -hmm. but just to say that, you know, even Einstein was pointing to this idea of an ether and then that's kind of a story, but he was actually saying, we think this thing exists. And then at one point said that it, um, there was this belief that maybe it wasn't necessary ether. And so it was kind of cast aside, but actually a number of scientists were saying, and now it's resurging in different forms, like the zero point field, this idea that there's an underlying fabric to everything that space, there isn't just empty space. It's, it's. There's something in between the space. Something in between. Yeah. And yeah, and I, I was watching something, I think it was a documentary on infinity on Netflix. They were, I think they were talking about that in regards to even traveling through space, that there's this, there's this energy field that is in between everything. And that if you tap into that, you can go even faster than light or something along those lines. It starts, your, your brain starts to hurt after a while when we start talking about these right. deep thoughts. The reason I bring these things up is, is because people listen and like, this is all fascinating, but how is this going to help me? Right. If you understand the whole, you start to understand the smaller units, which are ourselves. And the concept of the quantum field, it sounds to me in many ways, like it's chi energy. It's mm -hmm. gi energy in Japan or if I may bring in uh, George Lucas, the force. Uh, <laughs> there is something that is holding us all together, moving us forward. Like, you know, it's, if I, may, if I may quote Yoda, it is all around us. It is within us. It moves through us. Is that a kind of a, an understanding, at least what scientists are starting to come up with? That's that's my experience and understanding of it too, Alex, that there is this alive, intelligent, interconnected fabric to the universe that is like the force, you know, that L Lucas talked about. Um, and, you know, I think quantum physics points to it, or even I'm going to say in my experience, it, it feels that it has to be there because like when I do biofield tuning, I do um, distance energy healing work on people. Mm -hmm. And I put my tuning fork into the holographic field of somebody. And what that means is I intend with my awareness for that client to be in front of me. And I bring the fork into their, again, this is my imagination. This is me saying, you know, Alex is in front of me and I'm going to bring my fork into the field and my client will feel it and I'll feel it. Even though that client may be in Australia, thousands of miles away. So something is connecting us. We're in that very experience. And I have this daily, cause I do this work daily with people. I feel and sense the connection between us and it's real and I can't deny it. And my scientific mind may not be able to, you know, have a, like an easy explanation for it, but it's absolutely there. And, you know, that's, 
I think all of the different people doing energy work, that's, that's basically proven out again, time and again, and time and again. So we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, this alive interconnected network or fabric to the universe that, that incredible scientists like David Boehm and, uh, you know, Sky Isaacs Nelson are pointing to and talking about, and many others, there's work going on in Switzerland. I mean, there's, if you've seen infinite potential, there's mm-hmm. much of that work going on. And so, you know, a little bit to get back to your earlier question of, you know, why is it the materialist science still holds on so much? And, you know, science is founded on the idea that it's going to take, it's not going to topple easily. A new idea isn't going to just, uh, it takes a lot of convincing, right? And I, if we think about it, for example, like how much did we think that the world was flat before we toppled the idea that the world wasn't flat? Wait a minute, the world's not flat? I mean, I've been seeing (laughs) videos on YouTube stating the obvious. I look outside, it's flat to me. No, I'm joking. Everyone, I'm joking. It's a joke, everybody. It's a joke. It's a joke. Please. Please, I'm sorry if I've offended any flat earthers out there. Uh, right. I mean- right. And then the next one came on, you know, we thought the world went around, uh, the sun went around the earth. And how long did it take us to, you know, topple that idea? And so here we are, I think, at the cusp of this next big idea, which is that it isn't a material universe. In fact, we are, it's a conscious, intelligent universe. Everything is consciousness in which everything is arising everything is arising inside consciousness. And actually what I like to do with people is to point that this is actually true. And you can experience this right now for yourself by just asking yourself the question, does anything happen outside awareness? Can I find an edge to my awareness? You know, if I take my awareness out in front of me or behind me, above me or below me, is there an edge or a boundary, right? And if you sit in this contemplation, there isn't. You know, or if I ask you, where do you begin and where do I end or where do I end and you begin and can you find an edge? So we can already in our everyday, like simple experience right now of being human, notice there's no inside or outside. You can't find one because it doesn't exist. And that right there is actually your, you know, N equals one experiential proof for yourself that actually there's no other there's no separation now your your transformation um everything we're talking about is part of the transformation that you made and and the healing you did and the and the the shift that you made in your life one of the big things you talk about is the rewiring of your brain to quiet mm-hmm. that uh to quiet that voice that we all have the monkey brain that many people call it the that the the, the great critic um um in our head how can we, or how do you rewire your own brain and kind of shift things? Because, I mean, I've had uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton on and he talks all about the subconscious wiring and in the first seven years, like we're just hardwired with our surroundings and things like that. And, And those are hard to rewire. It's not impossible, but it's hard. So how do you, in your work, help people rewire thoughts, um, patterns that are harmful to, to yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. I I would say I use two main approaches. 
And the first one is the, you know, the ancient yogic techniques of learning to focus the mind. Mm. I think you can't ignore the benefit of doing those kinds of practices. So sitting meditation to focus on the breath or some other object is incredibly helpful to take some time to actually do that. And that, you know, can be very difficult because once you start to quiet the mind, actually that, or once you start to do that focus practice, the mind will actually start to bring up all kinds of thought, you know, energy in the form of thoughts that have been wanting to speak to you. So it can set people up for what feels like an impossible kind of mission, if you will. And mm -hmm. that's where tools like biofeedback, I think can be really useful. That's where it was for me in my, in my own story. I was using the Muse headband, which is this amazing little device that, you know, it's only a couple hundred dollars and you, it reads your brain waves while you're meditating and gives you feedback so that if you're having a busy mind, you hear a lot of rain. And as you focus the mind, like you focus on the breath, the rain quiets and you hear calm and then little birds start chirping. So for me, it sort of undid the black box of the mind. And I had like, kind of like a mind game to play. And that was, to me, that was like training wheels for learning to quiet the mind. And it's really helpful, especially in the beginning to have training wheels, to have teachers and support, to not think that this is not easy to do alone, you know, and just like you wouldn't walk into the gym and just like, I'm just going to, you know, for most people, you know, I'm just going to start playing with all the machinery. You have somebody show you how, the, how it works and you have support and you have a trainer and you get help. So um, tools like the Muse headband, and there are some others to quiet the nervous system, I think are incredibly useful now that we have them, you know, they didn't have them in, in India, you know, two, 300 years ago. So they have other techniques, mantras and chanting and things, but I'm a bit of a tech geek. And so I like to use the modern tools that are available um, and suggest them for people who like that kind of thing, you know? So you spoke about biofeedback. I've actually done biofeedback, uh, the old, uh, I guess an old school way, but like, you know, hooking up to a computer and they put all this stuff in. It was fascinating when you, when you do it because you start feeling the bliss, the bliss starts to turn on. And she's like, okay, hold on a second. And she types in something into the keyboard and I'm like, whoa, like I, I, it's, I feel it like instantly. Uh, or she wouldn't even tell me she was doing it. And I would just go, what's, what are you doing? I feel this or I feel that. And it just like, it really does rewire you in a way that's interesting. Can you talk about, first of all, what biofeedback is for people who don't know what biofeedback is and what are the benefits of using biofeedback and how is the machine that I just talked about differ from the Muse? Okay, sure. Great questions. Okay. So first biofeedback is where you monitor some aspect of your body. So heart, uh, like heart, uh, heart coherence, which is measured, you know, heart math does an amazing job of this measures your heart rhythms and your breathing and measures something called HRV in order to, um, teach you how to breathe in such a way that you can modulate your nervous system and calm down through monitoring of, of a, a strap that basically monitors your heart. So that would be one form of biofeedback. 
Another one would be like the aura ring that I'm wearing that's measuring my temperature and heart rate and all of that, and then is going to give me data about my sleep and stuff like that, right? Um, and then what the muse does or your, your neurofeedback that you did is monitor brain waves. So rather than a heart rhythm or temperature, it's monitoring brain waves and it's giving you feedback so that you can adjust your behavior. And then ultimately you don't want to need to use the tool. You need, you want to be able to get into that state without the tool. So it's like training wheels for, well, what does a quiet mind feel like? And if you don't know what a quiet mind feels like, and you've never been there before, then how are you going to know when you get there? <laughs> I mean, you might be like, oh, this feels pretty quiet, but not, you know, it's really helpful if a tool can say, aha, that's it. Because, you know, once you know what the target is, you can make your way back there better and better and better, right? It would be like trying to go to a archery range with no bullseye. It was like, well, where am I supposed to point this thing? You know, you, you kind of, it's very helpful to have guidance to know what you're, what you're aiming for and what that feels like in your body. So what does it feel like in my body to quiet my mind? And so neurofeedback gives you, gives you that pathway to know how to get there. So what is the act, what are the machines actually doing uh, or that, or those, those, those machines, what the machines are doing to the brain waves? So like, because I felt a change, I felt a shift. Like she was just, how do you want to feel? Like, oh, I'm not going to do that. And she like typed something in and I would see this. And, and there was a program that it just ran like for 30 minutes and there's different waves and different things. And as I was going through it, I just started to feel blissful. I started to feel different. I wasn't in the med it wasn't a meditative aspect of things, but it was it was literally reprogramming the way I felt through electrical pulses going back into my my brain. Uh, I know that sounds scary as hell, and it's not a lobotomy, uh, but <laughs> it can, it can't sound like that way. But it was very calm and gentle and didn't feel anything physical. It was all internal. Is that what's going on? Like they literally just changing the field, the, 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 the hurts, if you will, in your brain. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So it sounds like you had something a little different and I want to distinguish it. Please. So there's a, there's a type, like what I'm speaking about, not neurofeedback or biofeedback is your brain waves or your heart are monitored you get information that allows you to change oh, your yeah. right? Well, so, it changed it for me. Right. Nobody changes anything for you. It just simply is a is just a feedback on what's happening in the brain. Like, wow, your brain's really noisy right now. So I'm going to play rain sound. And then as I focus my breath and I learn to do that, and now the rain is going to quiet to a soft patter. And as I get really quiet, as I do it, right? then then I get a silence. That's like passive. That's like a form, right? That's passive. There is what it sounds like you're speaking about is more of active, where actually you were having an electrical signal passed through your brain actively. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I didn't have any sound or anything. It was just like, she plugged me up with some sensors 
And I did a handful of sessions and she does a lot of the, I was in LA at the time. She does a lot of the the big spiritual guys in LA. So, uh-huh. uh, so she was like, Oh yeah, this guy and this guy, this guy. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So yeah, I'm in good hands. And this is what it kind of like resets the, the, the brain resets the, I get, with the brain resets the body in many ways. So there was something happening where I, I walked out refreshed. I walked out blissful, very calm, um, you know, non-stressed. It was doing something to me yeah, completely actively. I wasn't doing it myself. Okay, great. So there's a whole side of like electrical stimulation in the brain, like TDCS type of, of uh, sensors uh, that it sounds like you had. And I've only done a little bit of that. I have one device that does that and I'm experimenting with, with a home version of that. But um, to say that, yes, absolutely. They, you know, people have figured out biohackers is in the, mostly in the biohacker realm still have figured out that you can pass electrical wave, you know, electrical stimulation at different parts of the brain and that can quiet the mind or that can, you know, connect different parts that changes your experience in the brain of being human. There's another one called Neorhythm that gives a pulsed electromagnetic frequency and you can put it across the top of your head for focus or you can put it behind your head for more of a meditative stimulation. And it legitimately, like if you put it on, somebody I put it on said, yeah, it kind of feels like I have a cup. I just drank a cup of coffee, but I didn't, you know? So, so it's, so it's, but it's actively, is that, are these, are these biofeedback machines, are they actually rewiring you or is it temporary only? In other words, if you do this, let's say once a week, you know, for, for a year, are you going to be able to get there yourself quicker or are you going to be wired kind of like that differently? Cause I know, as you know, when you meditate for a long time, you're rewiring your brain when you meditate, like there's a, and longer you meditate, the more rewiring of your brain it becomes. So yeah, you don't get as angry as quickly. You know, there's much more calm. So there's a rewiring. So is, are these machines helping you do that on a biohacking kind of way? You know, I can't give you a definitive answer on that. I'll give you an intuitive answer on that. Um, you know, neuroplasticity, what we know is that the more you travel a path, the brain travels a path or develops a habit. You know, it's like, I liken it to like a rut in the road. Like you're, you know, you're a wagon traveling down a dirt road. And if you keep traveling down that dirt road, now you have ruts and the wagon just kind of stays in there. And to me, that's, that's the analogy I use for the way that neuroplasticity works and brain connections work. We keep doing something over and over again, and it becomes habit, just like driving a car, right? At first it's all difficult. And then you drive, you know, you learn how to shift and now you do it second nature. And so I would believe that those devices, you put them on enough and you have those connections made enough, then they're going to be established in the brain. And yes, it would be easier to get back there over and over again, but I can't give you a citation or something like that, that I know that I've seen that that works. I'll I'll bet people have looked at that though, but it's like a groove in a record. Yeah. Intuitively. Yeah, intuitively it should work. All right, I was curious. I only had a few sessions uh, about it, but but I've also meditated for a long, long, long time, uh, and and I do my meditation practice. I, I've just noticed in my meditation practice, my life's changed so much over the last seven years that I've been meditating. You know, hour, two hours, three hours a day. Sometimes it um it does re- it does rewiring in your brain without without yeah. question. 
Absolutely. Do you feel like the devices, the the electrical stimulation you did changed? That? No, I, there was only two sessions. Oh, it was okay. it was more it was only a couple sessions. So I think that those if I would have look, if I had that machine at home and I knew how to run it, I'd be on it every day. Like it it was addictive. I was like on it. I was like, man, this feels great. It's like you're 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 blissful. Okay, the word is blissful. Mm-hmm. Not as blissful as I've gotten in my meditations, because I go mm-hmm. deeper in my meditations than I than the machine could take me. So I might be past that. Um, as far as where that maybe there's another program, maybe there's another level. I was maybe on introductory. I don't know, but it, it there's a different feeling. But it it was just fascinating to me that all of a sudden, like she just hit a couple keystrokes. She's like, okay, you're gonna get something happening, uh, and now and you're just like, whoa, and you just kind of. <laughs> You just go, it's not getting high, but it's like this blissful place that you just like the relaxation, the calmness, everything just quiets down. There's nothing going on when you're, when you're going through these, when you're going through this bio, uh, biofeedbacking uh, process. So I was, a friend of mine told me about it. I was like, oh, sure, I'll give it a shot. Why not? And it really was, uh, it was really interesting. Again, I've been able to get to places in deeper meditations than I could in that machine, and I can get there more consistently now because of my practice. But it's like you said, training wheels. It's a good way to, if you are just coming off the street and you've never worked out in a gym, <laughs> it's like, it's it's like, let's put these on before you hurt yourself. <laughs> let's, yeah, let's supercharge you a little bit. Yeah. I do want to address just another aspect of this that I think is so important because these tools, you know, do help focus the mind or quiet the mind. But ultimately the path that I spoke about, the Mahamunrun Zodchen path, right. the breath work that I teach called breath of love is really trying to catalyze not just a blissful experience, you know, that you have on the meditation cushion, but is really trying to help upgrade your entire life so that this non-dual awareness is actually your lived waking state. And to me, that's more than just learning to focus. That That is way beyond just learning to focus your mind or a blissful state. That is actually surrendering into the flow of life that's here, this force that we spoke about earlier mm-hmm. and shifting into an understanding that is beyond conceptual, that is a lived experience in the flow with all of life. Like that's actually where the true real life game-changing transformation happens where all of your life becomes a meditation, not just on the cushion. It's, it's, these are tools and, and yogic, you know, yogic masters have been saying that for years. Uh, It is, these are tools to get you to the place you're just talking about. Mm -hmm. That's why they walk around in this blissful state all the time, yet they're not on a cushion all the time uh, or on a rock a rock because that's what they did back in the day um, <laughs> when meditators were meditators. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but it's true. These are all different tools to quiet the mind and to get it's again, it's to get back to what the truth is of who you truly are. You are not this avatar. You are not this body. You are a spirit, a soul, something that is uh, a spiritual being having the physical experience. And and this is just such a thick, muddy, dense 
uh, reality or simulation, depending how you look at it, that it's difficult to to cut through all that kind of smoke and mud, if you will, to find the core of who you are and meditation and these techniques that we're talking about, even the biofeedback machines, they help you get there a little bit quicker to the point where once you understand, once you get into the place where like a Yogananda went uh, or, or these ascended masters finally get, they find, oh, I got it now. I'm here now. Is, is that fair? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I think that's fair. And I want to say that I think the non-dual pointings, um, it's also fair to say that that's, I just want people to know it's also available to you right now. I mean, yes. you can, you know, I, I think Adi Ashanti said it some of the best. I mean, I've, there's so many great teachers, but, you know, enlightenment is the end of resistance to what is and our oh. story, right? Yes. Like, and for me in my own life, I, in the various, you know, transitions, I hesitate to call them awakenings because it just seems loaded. But when things started to shift for me and I had this realization one day I came into, I was out for a run and I came in the door and there's like dog hair all over the floor. And, you know, it's it's an ordinary Saturday morning, you know, and the house is kind of in disarray and whatever. And I stared at the dog hair and it was like, all of a sudden it dawned on me that it wasn't a problem. Like the dog hair just was, and I didn't need to make a problem out of it. And I know that sounds like a really silly like example, but in that moment, it was like something shifted and I got it. And it was like the moment our mind makes a problem out of what's here, that's where, that's where the problem, if you will, starts, you know, that our mind is the thing that says, you know, dog hair need to clean up problem, you know, thing to do. And it takes you out of this flow of life. And it's not like I stopped cleaning my house, but what I did stop doing was, was constantly seeing every aspect of thing in my life as a problem to be solved. It simply is what it is. It's just dog hair and it's just dirty dishes and it's just a toilet to be clean or whatever, right? It's like the traffic is just the traffic. It doesn't like nothing here actually has any opinion about what you think about it. It really doesn't, you know, and it's only our mind that creates this friction or resistance to any aspect of what's here. And to step into the flow is actually simply to recognize and allow whatever's here to just be as it is, like just be with what's here. Because by the time we're, it's here, like, we're aware of it. It's already here. You can't do anything about it. It's here already. So that fundamental crucial shift that all the sages were really talking about was just to fall in alignment with what's here and stop resisting. And in the moment of that recognition that we stop resisting what's here, we can open to this potentiality of quantum field, which Sky Isaac Nelson talks about so beautifully. Everything is a potential and our attention, our awareness is the tool that allows us to shape that infinite potential, all those little potentials that are here into our reality of what happens next. 
isn't yeah. it in, is it an interesting that when you say the word resistance it's uh in in many ways that is the ultimate purpose of life is to release the resistance to surrender to what is and the great sages the great spiritual masters have been saying that forever and ever and ever in many different ways in many different flavors from many different parts of the world and it is about the, the our anger when we get angry is because we're trying to control something that we can't control right the dog hair i don't right. want the dog hair that you can't control that the dog hair is on the floor or all over the place like you 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 can get rid of the dog and yeah. there's that's off the problem but at the moment that you're angry is because I'm trying to control something that I can't control. And if you let that go, life becomes easier. And for those of those people listening who have children, God bless. Uh, because <laughs> yes, yes. And I have two, young, I had two young children. So I, I still, I still do. And, uh, um, it is it's uh, testing all the time. Uh, there's lots of resistance <laughs> that I am trying. Yeah, oh my gosh, it's the greatest, you know, it's, it's got to be the greatest teaching tools of all time, you know, <laughs> if you want to be a master, be a parent. <laughs> I always say this to people. I'm like, you know what? All these spiritual masters, none of them had kids. And then I, I one, I found one, Lahir Mahashai, who actually had kids. Uh, years later, I was like, okay, he's my, he's my, he's my guru then, because I need to know how he handled children, <laughs> you know, but 100%. right. Like, you know, Jesus didn't have any, well, maybe he did. I don't know, but maybe, maybe. you, know, yeah, that's a different, that's a different that's, conspiracy that's theory. A, that's a different conversation, you know, um, maybe he kids, maybe he did. I don't know. But generally speaking, the, the common theme of, of spiritual masters is that they don't have kids. And uh, there's a reason for that, because when they come to this world, like, listen, if you want me to find enlightenment, I can't with like these kids. <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But if we if we simply stop the. I don't like this conversation, you know, in our heads and which is ending the resistance, because, you know, awareness is actually OK with everything as it is. It's only the mind that is having an argument about what's here. And so if you align with your awareness, if you align to the place that's within you that isn't having an argument about what's here, you, you are basically aligning with the wholeness that you are. And in doing so, you actually can harness the capacity then to do aligned action in the world which is to step into, you know, wherever you want to serve. It's not like, I think people think, well, if I give up my resistance, then the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. No. Nope. The world's actually already in the hell in a handbasket. And what you need to do is find your wholeness and then you'll find all the capacity uh, and endless love and ability to, to be of service to the world that needs you. Like you don't come as an injured soldier. You come as you know, the superhero ready to help. Right. And, and again, a lot of the things that you're talking about in regards to, you know, things are as they are, if the milk spills, it's not good or bad. The milk is spilt. That's it. You might get angry about it because you're trying to control it. You might get angry at the child who spilled it because you've told her a hundred times, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, the thing is what it is 
and we're the ones that put that 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 label on it which is what i've said before too is and i've heard many people say this there is no good or bad what is good for you in your culture might be bad for me and it's just the way we were raised the the entry point that we came in so it might be cultural might be religious might be family that you know there's parts of the world that you can eat people right <laughs> i don't want to do that not don't think that's cool or kosher um but other places in the world their culture is like what's wrong i don't understand so there is good and bad is a really interesting point of view uh and life is in itself but that's a whole other conversation yeah I'm so glad you brought that up because I wrestled with that a lot as somebody who has Jewish heritage and, you know, really thought about, oh my God, wait, how could it be that Hitler, you know, that's not bad. And how do we get beyond that? And I think Rumi said it, you know, so beautifully out beyond right doing and wrongdoing. There is a field. I will meet you there. You know, (laughs) so beautiful, right? Like it, we can look back And, you know, for me now, I just look back and have compassion. And that's like the Dalai Lama is my example in this, you know, that no matter what he brings compassion. And I heard some, um, I heard a story that he told or Tibetan told about, you know, Tibetans that were captured by the Chinese, the Tibetan nuns and monks who were captured by the Chinese, who said their greatest fear was actually to lose compassion for their torturers. Mm. That was their greatest fear. That compassion is actually the most, like our own some sense of compassion and love is the, that's like, that's what we, that's like what we are actually, if we've lost that, we've actually lost touch with our divine and our sacred, you know, our sacred center of who and what we really are. Mm-hmm. And so I think the mind can get really wrapped around the axle with good and bad and, you know, evil and good. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show and can't make sense of it. Like I spent a lot of time just not being able to make sense of what this perceived evil. I mean, it's very easy, right? To point to in the relative world, you know, I'm going to say, you know, what, you know, raping women and children, uh, that's, I mean, how could it be more evil than that? But, and in that relative level sense, I don't disagree. I actually think we can hold both ideas at the same time mm-hmm. and say that that in the relative world is what we would call evil. And that's fine. Like, I'm not going to have an argument with that, but at the same time, we can hold the non-dual understanding that ultimately we are love and everything is arising in service of love. And when we align with that, then we we see the world differently. We don't we don't get split into and lose touch with actually the love that we are. Can you talk a little bit about the illusionary self? I know you've talked about that before. Can you explain what the illusionary self is? I would describe the illusionary self is the confusion, the the identified self, the the um 
I love Rupert Spira's analogy here mm. of the movie and the screen. So the illusory self is thinking that we're the movie that's playing here, you know? And so he, he likes to say like, there's, you know, John Smith, the actor, and then there's the character King Lear that he's playing. And the illusory self is to see that we're only the actor King Lear and we aren't, and there's no John Smith. We right. lose ourselves in the movie of character, right? Um, and all the teachings and all the pointings from the sages are saying, you know, you aren't that illusory self. And again, you can even recognize that right now, because if everything disappeared, Alex, and you and I were floating in space, you know, with like, you know, we knew nothing about where we were. Like I woke up right now and I knew nothing about my history or that I was on this podcast and you're same thing. Like you have no, mm -hmm. but you still know that you are. Like, what's the one thing you would know, right? You would say, I am. Yeah. And everything after that would be a description, would be a story that you're making about the I am. But the I am is actually the single truth when everything about our known perceived reality kind of is, is washed away. And, and so for me, the illusory self is to lose the knowing that you are, no matter what is happening in the external world, that you aren't a character, you aren't any of that. You are this pure love. You are the pure, because that has no qualities to it, right? Except I would say just light love, just beingness, the, the light of being, if you will, if you want to just even love can sound like kind of loaded, but just the light of being that we are is what we fundamentally are. It was, uh, I think it was uh, Yogananda who said, um, most of us are focused on the movie, but what you need to do is turn around in the theater and look at the light that is projecting mm -hmm. the movie. And I think that's where you need to be going towards is that light, not the movie itself. That's just, you know, it's just, you know, fun. <laughs> it means nothing. It means nothing. It's just air. It's, you know, um, it's really I fun. It's, yeah. I think it's, you know, I mean, and I think to see the movie is like consciousness dancing. It's yeah. just universe at play with itself. Right. Like you, and actually when you step into that understanding, there's a lightness to it that, that everything takes on. It's like, oh, this is just dancing light. That's all it is, you know? And, um, well, I want to ask you this, this, this question, I really am interested in your thoughts on, on why is it that we're taught from early ages that we don't have the power to change ourselves, that this, the salvation is always outside of us. That goes from the medical field to religion to to school to like every institution in our lives state that at least in the west state that outside is the answer but in the east it's inside is where the answers lie why is it like that in the west mm. <laughs> that's the easy questions <laughs> again again meaning of life meaning of life right thank you Alex. <laughs> Um, just feeling what 
what how spirit wants to come through for me to answer this beautiful question that you asked one that i've also asked <laughs> myself for sure the risk of there's no there's no male bashing here but i'm going to say that i think the patriarchal orientation of western society has been one of the main things that has sent us down this road mm-hmm. that when <laughs> you know maybe it starts at nicaea i don't know in <laughs> the beginning of of kind of conventional christianity um you know, Christianity is not the only one that's patriarchal, right? So is Judaism, right? But when we sort of allowed this split and that kind of looking outside to a, a God, a Jesus or something outside of ourselves, we set up a kind of duality of a, of a savior outside or a thing outside that would save us. And you know, the divine feminine, interestingly enough, is that is actually the surrender inward. And so we have a lot in the Western society, our emphasis, at least up until, you know, has largely been on, on the masculine action oriented outside world, as opposed to the inner feminine soft surrender. And mm-hmm. I think that orientation, which I, I, I'm going to say, it feels like that's when it started in, you know, the negating of, of um, the ancient, you know, cultures that were pointing towards more towards inner. a nature oriented inner and towards that outer. I, I feel like that's kind of where it got started. And we, you know, and that was that then sent us down um, kind of conquest and and this experience of, you know, it's a very action-oriented masculine experience of the world. Interesting, right? That consciousness is playing that out. But I have to, I mean, there must be consciousness wanted to see what happens when you go in the unbalanced direction mm. of, of a lot of this sort of outward-oriented focus. Well, I mean, and, and if you go back even farther than than Christianity, you even in Egyptian times, ancient Egyptian times, the same thing, gods outside and in Greece, uh, you know, gods outside of you are the answer, not in, inward, uh, only in the yogic texts, in the Jainism, Hinduism, deeper, the Vedic, the Vedic texts, they were always talking about inner right. and looking inward. And, and that's how you connect with source and things like that. Uh, but you're, I guess you're, I mean, I guess you're right. It's a big question. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, no, it's a great question. And let me just say too, I mean, you have to say like, we could have at various points seen through that. Right. I mean, oh. like, I feel like, you know, when Descartes said, I think therefore I am like, that has to be one of the greatest misstatements that's ever been said. Like anybody who's a meditator should know, <laughs> like, that is just not true mm-hmm. because I can be and there is no thinking going on. And I definitely am, you know? And so, well, why, why was I, why was that held up as like, 
why was he held up as some great you know philosopher to say that and why did everybody believe him why didn't they go no <laughs> but there was no do- other information there was no other information like again the the eastern ideas hadn't come over yet you know even yeah. you know yogananda came in the early 1900s bringing right. meditation and yoga to the west i mean you know yeah. those concepts weren't really they were kind of dizzled around but it wasn't in the mainstream um yeah. we can go this is a deep rabbit hole we can keep going down let's let's Great pull our, let's let's pull ourselves out here before we get before it's too okay. late um uh, now i'm going to ask you a few questions i ask all my guests what is the definition of living a good life we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show such a beautiful question Uh, Living a good life to me is living life aligned and in flow with what's here. Um, And in alignment with whatever your purpose or calling is. I think that, you know, it's playing out differently for every, everyone that could be, you know, at some points in my life, that's being a good mother or other points, it was in service to something else, but it's, just at any moment, wherever you are, being in alignment with your highest truth. I guess that's what I would say. What is your definition of God? All that is. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? Love. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Heartmindalchemy.com is my business and website. And I have offerings. Yeah. Lots of offerings about coaching and classes and things like that. And do you have any parting words for our audience? Mm. Just live your, you know, to the best of your ability. I think see through Maya, see through the illusion that's here and come to the truth that you are not separate from anything and that you are fundamentally made of love. You are love. You are all of it. Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing to help awaken the world. I appreciate you, my dear. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate you and the work that you are doing in the world. I want to thank Holly so much for coming on the show and sharing her knowledge with all of us. Thank you so much, Holly. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 185. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.